So before we jump into the reading of our scripture, uh, I'm going to do what we always do every Sunday, talk to the kids, let the kids know what the passage is going to be about, uh, and give you all something to talk about uh, on the way home later this week. So, okay, here we go. New series, kids. We were, who knows what we were just in? Uh, this was weeks ago when I was last here. Job. Good. That's awesome. Yeah, that was like forever ago. Job. Okay, now we're in the New Testament. Job was in the Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. Okay, here's what you need to know about 1 Corinthians. Mayonnaise. Kids, who likes mayonnaise? <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, kids, maybe you don't like mayonnaise. Who likes Chick-fil-A sauce? They, that's mayonnaise. It's special mayonnaise, but it is mayonnaise. Okay, now here's the crazy thing about mayonnaise. Whether you love or hate mayonnaise, kids, mayonnaise is a miracle because it should be impossible. Because what mayonnaise is, most basically, it is oil and water. And oil and water, if you didn't know this, oil and water, they do not mix. They don't. You can, like, go home and you can make chocolate milk because chocolate will mix wonderfully with milk and you've got chocolate milk. Go home and try to mix water and oil. You can put it in a glass, you can stir it up, and it looks like it's mixing. Come back a few minutes later and they will have separated again. Oil and water don't mix, okay? But that's what mayonnaise is, oil and water. And the big question is, how? How is this miracle of mayonnaise possible? because of this thing called an emulsifier, which is a super fun word to say. Kids, everyone say it. Say emulsifier. It's so fun. They, okay, it's an, uh, an emulsifier. And you know what an emulsifier is? Uh, an emulsifier is something that can bring two different things that should not go together. It can bring them together to belong together. You know what the emulsifier is in mayonnaise? It's an egg. That was awesome. It's an egg. Okay, an egg. Okay, so, so here's what the egg does. The egg looks at the water and says, listen, don't worry about the oil. Just hold on to me. And then the egg looks at the oil and is like, hey, listen, don't worry about the water. You just hold on to me. And so as the water holds on to the egg and as the oil holds on to the egg, bam, they are joined together. Two things that should not go together. Two things that they don't have anything in common are brought to, together to make the wonderful miracle of mayonnaise and Chick-fil-A sauce. That's the miracle of mayonnaise. Okay, so what? Like, so what for us? Like, who cares? Mayonnaise. Here's the so what, kids. The church is mayonnaise. That's what the church is. The church is just like mayonnaise because, the like, if you look around you, and what the church is, is all these different people. Like you look around, like you're all these different people, you're like, they don't look like me. I don't know what they're into. You know, kids, you look at all these different people, and you're like, how, like, what is going to bring us together if we're so different, if we think different things, about different things, if we're into different things, if we think different things are fun, like what is going to bring us together? Kids, what is the emulsifier of the church? Say it, just say it out loud. Jesus. Jesus is the egg. That's what Jesus does. So Jesus will take one person and say, you just hold on to me. He'll take another person and say, you hold on to me. And he keeps doing that and doing that. And what you've got is a church. You've got the church because of Jesus, because Jesus is the Savior 
of his people. He is the Savior for every single person ever. Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sin and from death and from the devil. We all, each of us, need him. And as we hold on to him by faith, that's what makes the church. That's what brings us all together. Even though we're all so different from one another, that's what makes us a family. That's what makes us uh, mayonnaise. Uh, That is what 1 Corinthians is going to tell us. Uh, 1 Corinthians is going to tell us that if we hold on to Jesus, he will connect you to other people you thought you could never be connected to. People you thought you could never like, never get along with, never love. And you will love them because of Jesus. You will be able to love them uh, more than you could ever know. Hold on to Jesus, and he is going to heal what separates us, what divides us, make us one family. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. That's what we're starting today, our new fall series. Finally, y'all. Okay, this is the letter. This is the letter that the Apostle Paul writes after 1 and 2 Thessalonians. If you're with us with 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we covered that last spring. So really what we're doing is we're just kind of following Paul along the way uh, as he gathers the church and it grows. So Paul arrived in Thessalonica, then he moved on to Athens, then Corinth, and he plants a church there. Uh, This is the letter that we're about to read as he moves on from Corinth to plant another church in Ephesus. He's writing back to the Corinthians. All right, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So uh, Paul, like I said, Paul's in Ephesus planting a new church, uh, and he gets word that the church back in Corinth is in big trouble. And, and he, we find out later that he's gotten a couple of letters. People have come to see him in Ephesus to tell him things are not going well in Corinth. So he's hearing, he's hearing it from different groups. He's hearing different sides of all these stories. Uh, but what's clear is there, there is division amongst them. And so right before Paul, you know, outs them and, you know, in verse 10 says, hey, I, I know what's going on. Paul is very clear in saying, 
I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. There be no divisions among you. Be united, same mind, same judgment. So when Paul says all of you, it's comprehensive. Like the disunity that's going on, the division is all their problem. Because they're all part of the problem. Uh, it, for us here, same. This is what we need to say. Same. As in this letter has to do with all of us. As in when there is division in the church, no one can sit and say, well, I, I don't have to bother about being one and united to my church. You do. We can't be united if we're not all united, right? Uh, we can't all be one if we're not all one. And it sounds so obvious. Okay, but unity, what we're going for, it's just, it's just not an easy thing. One of the mottos of our country is, e, and I'm not going to say this right, it's Latin, e pluribus unum, uh, from the many, one. As in unity is this thing, it is a longing in all of our hearts. Every person who's ever lived, unity is this longing, because it was put there by God. Uh, it, it, so it's not, like, it's not just a Western thing. It's a person thing. And yet, we're all fragmented, we're all divided. So think about it like this. Wherever you land on these issues... Oh, right, like right there, right there. That exposes, like, if you're going to land somewhere on an issue, there's a, there, that exposes that there's a dividing line. So right there. So uh, wherever you land on these issues, issues of class, issues of race, issues of education, economics, politics, uh, issues as inconsequential as sports, wherever you land on the new SEC. You know, uh, I, I almost accosted my best friend a few weeks ago because I could not bear the depths of his ignorance about the Astros. I, just like what, and he's going to hear this, um, unity is so elusive in the world and in our families. And shocker that division makes its way into the church. And yet it must be overcome. So it's really, 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 really wild. Everything that Paul says about these Corinthians before his call to unity. He says he's writing to the church. He's writing to the church of God in Corinth. They are the church. They're sanctified, Paul says. They're saints together with all the other Christians around the ancient Near East. Jesus is their Lord. They are enriched in all speech and knowledge because of the gospel. And because of the gospel, they do not lack any spiritual gifts. Jesus, with whom they have fellowship, they have fellowship with Jesus. And Paul says, and Jesus will sustain them as a church to the very end. Hey, this is so wild because, spoiler, here's where we're going. These Corinthians, they're fighting over everything. Everything from teaching and who their leaders are. Well, that, they're your leaders. Well, he's my leader, and that one's my leader. Uh, they are fighting over because they're doing things sexually in the church, inside the church and outside the church, that the, depra the depraved Corinthian Greeks would not think of doing. 
Uh, they are suing one another in public courts. There are inappropriate marriages and divorces. There are all kinds of grudges. Uh, there are, uh, they are participating in pagan rituals, all kinds of compromises with the surrounding culture, getting inebriated at church, at the Lord's table. And then there's greed, all kinds of greed. And somehow, at the same time that all of that is going down, there is all this spiritual snobbery and elitism in the church. So they're a mess. And Paul calls them saints. Calls them the church of God. Says they have fellowship with Jesus. When you drag yourself out of bed in the morning and you reluctantly look into that mirror, you see a mess. A physical, you see a physical mess, right? And if you, and if you dare dabble in forced self-reflection and you look, your, you look yourself in the eyes and you stare into your soul, you see a spiritual mess. I know you do. I know I'm not the only one. Is this... That my morning my morning experience. Come on, yeah, you do too. Hey, you what do you like? You do some for self reflection. What do you see about yourself? Someone full of pride uh, and fear at the same time. Uh, someone who daily compromises their convictions and at the same time looks down their noses at everyone else who's compromising. Uh, someone who's full of anger and anxiety full of lust and shame. Someone who's greedy, gossipy, someone who's a slanderer, someone who's a workaholic, and at the same time, a lazy bones. Um, someone who's full of selfishness. Someone who neglects those who they're supposed to love the most. And, 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 and that's not who you are. As in like, that's not your identity brother, sister. Then in Christ, you are a saint. In Christ, you are forgiven and you are holy. Your sin, Christian, does not have dominion over you. Jesus does. You do not belong to the devil. You belong to your Lord and Savior. You bear his name, Christian, and Paul knows who he's writing to, and so he's going to write this super applicable letter telling these Christians to be who they are. So a pastor mentor of mine has this story uh, about one of his best friends. He's a Marine, uh, and he's just come back from combat. They're hanging out with some other friends. They gather around this guy. They start asking him all these questions that they you know, want wanting to be uh, asking him. First question is, asking this Marine, their best friend, hey, what's it like? What's it like to have someone fire a gun at you? And the Marine says, <clears throat> I can't tell you. You have to, you, I can't tell you. You have to experience that to understand it. And so then they ask him, they, they, I get that, okay. Okay, well, well, then what did you learn when that happened? And the Marine thinks about it, and he comes back and he says, you know what, that I can tell you. When that happened, when I was first shot at, I learned that even though I was a Marine, I needed to learn to act like a Marine. And the friends ask, they're like, 
What do you mean? And he says, the Marine says, what happens when, the fir- when that first man is shot, almost every man falls down. It's like it's inexplicable. That single bullet stopped the advance of 70 Marines. And I realized at that moment that everything I had trained to be, uh, everything I had been trained for was for this moment. And I had to get up and be the Marine that I was. And for the rest of that engagement, I went from man to man and grabbed each one by the collar. Some had stood up, those that hadn't, I picked up and I said, you're a Marine, go be a Marine. Okay, and we can get that, not having been there, because that is the argument that Paul is making to the Corinthians. Verse two, you are a Christian, go be a Christian. And he doesn't say that in a shaming sense. He says that in this beautiful, revealing sense. It's in loved ones. You are a Christian. And you need to be who you are. And you need to live out your identity before the world and before our great and holy and awesome transcendent God and with, sorry, with each other. The big application that Paul starts with that he's going to hammer home for the rest of the letter is this, is that in being united to Jesus, we are united to everyone else who's united to Jesus. That vertical, that, so that vertical reality between us and God, it has horizontal consequences between us and us. So again, verse 2, like you are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, no schisms, no divisions, be united. Now, given who makes up the church, us, uh, given who makes up the church, division is coming like it is expected. But when it comes, we cannot act like, ah, this is just, you know what, we'll just make do. We'll just be divided. It's not, disunity is not something that we can live with when the division comes. It needs to be overcome with unity. And that word united in the Greek, uh, fishermen, just to give you a picture, fishermen use that word united to talk about mending their nets. It was also used by doctors uh, for a dislocated shoulder being snapped back into place. So Paul says to the church divided, You've got to mend the divide. Snap your dislocated body back into place. And as you read along, what we're going to see is that the unity, <laughs> the unity that Paul is talking about, is n- it's not finding the lowest common denominator. As in, it's not about, uh, let's just avoid uh, talking about uh, the truth uh, of the hard questions so that we can just all get along. In verse 10, before he says, be united, he says, you all agree. Now, here's like Greek stuff here. That, the literal translation there of you all agree is, he says, you all say the same thing. That's what he says. He says, you all speak the same thing, which means their unity entails that they confess the same truths, that they share the same convictions. So the aim for us is not to go for some minimalism, that we can all agree on. Their unity is a common commitment to a body of truth, confessed and preached. 
And then he says, be united in the same mind and the same judgment, which also means, like, you got to go even further. Like, this is, it can't even be a superficial verbal unity consensus where we're just paying lip service. Like, let's just say what we got to say in order to all, you know, go along to get along. No, our unity actually flows out of a common heart expressing itself in a common tongue. So we could not be more practical in answering this question how are we going to do this? Like, how are we, okay, hmm, <laughs> how are we going to do this? People that are this different, how are we going to do this? Well, did you know, I'm going to answer that question with another question. Did you notice what's mentioned in this passage more than anything else? Take a guess. Like, what's the, the best answer to any question most of the time is Jesus. Like, who is, who is mentioned? What is mentioned more than anything else in this passage? Jesus. He is mentioned explicitly 11 times. That's explicitly. It's mentioned, he's referred to a lot more than that, but 11 times in 11 verses. That's just by direct name. That is more concentrated references to Jesus than any other passage in the New Testament. Right here. The opening of 1 Corinthians. And it's because Jesus is the one who unites this community. Jesus is the origin and the reconciler of Christian community. And that, what that means is that you're not, and I'm not. And let's be really honest, we hate that. Like we, don't like, we don't like that. And that's part of the rub. That's part of what's so hard is we want to be, a, we want a community of people around us that looks just like us, that thinks just like us, that votes just like us, that gets excited about stuff that I get excited about, that makes me feel important and cool and makes my life comfortable. That's what we want. But the Bible says you don't get to set the terms of the community that Jesus is going to put you in. Jesus does. Here's the big question is, does that work? Does it work? Does Jesus, does Jesus really work as the thing that unites the church? So think on this. Think on the beginning of the church. Like where the church started. Think about the guys, the disciples it started with. Think about Peter and James and John, Jesus' closest buddies. Three totally self-indulgent, total hotheads. And Jesus puts them together big, deficient personalities, and Jesus unites them. Uh, And then you've got Matthew, who's a Jewish tax collector, collecting taxes to support the Roman government through the extortion of the Jewish people. And then you've got Simon the Zealot, who is part of a political party in rebellion against the Roman government, and Jesus unites them. These are the leaders of his church, along with seven other screw-ups. Okay, how about this? What about the guy who's writing all this stuff? What about Paul? Like, does Jesus work for Paul and the church, uniting them? Okay, it's dramatic is a total understatement in answering that question. Because Paul, if you might, you might know this, Paul was a young Pharisee, and he was the chief persecutor of the early church. He once traveled 150 miles on foot to the edge of the Roman Empire to arrest some Christians, because to him, totally worth it. Wipe them all out, 
He, he tells us later, like, that is what woke him up in the morning. That is what gave his life purpose. Destroy this Christian church thing. And then Jesus converts Paul. And Paul moves from killing Christians to leading Christians, from terrorizing the church to building it up, from driving people away from the church to drawing people into the church, from threatening people to curse Jesus to teaching people to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And y'all, the church, you've got to think, like the church is only so big at the beginning. And so for the rest of Paul's life, whenever he is preaching, whenever he is fellowshipping, he would see somebody whose wife, somebody whose husband, daughter, son, mom, dad, brother, sister, that he'd killed. I mean, can you, ima- can you imagine what it would be like for Paul after he'd become a Christian and he'd be out all day preaching the gospel to people and then in the quiet of the night, remember the voices of the families that he had bound and dragged off to die. People that he would now consider as brothers and sisters, but they're gone now because he cast his vote against them. Can you, can you, can you imagine uh, the memory of that inside him every day? Wakes up in the morning, goes about the day, every night, and Jesus, in his grace, it's bigger. It bridges. It covers over. It heals. It mends those kinds of divides to make an enemy family. What about this divided church in Corinth? that Paul is writing to. Does Jesus work for this church and church unity? It's the city of Corinth. Let me tell you about the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was one of the gems of the ancient Roman Empire. Rome had actually conquered and destroyed Corinth 150 years earlier, and then Julius Caesar comes along and sees how, you know, valuable it is, the strategery of Corinth. I think there's a word now. Uh, And right there, it's right there on the Mediterranean. It's surrounded by ports, It connects the east and the west. It it, it is this thing that connects uh, northern Greece and southern Greece. And so Caesar rebuilds Corinth, seeing how valuable it is. And and being a major trade route uh, with lots of economic opportunity, it attracts people from all over the world. So it is this big, huge melting pot of cultures, religions, and it became a fave getaway spot uh, because it is the original Sin City. Uh, Acts tells us that before Corinth, Paul was in Philippi. He preaches the gospel. So here's how Paul gets to Corinth. He's in Philippi. He preaches the gospel, starts a church, and he's attacked, and he's brutally beaten and imprisoned. So then he moves on from Philippi, and uh, from there he goes to Thessalonica, preaches the gospel, starts a church, which starts a riot. So he leaves, then he goes to Berea, preaches the gospel, starts a church, which starts another riot. And then he goes to Athens and he preaches the gospel and he's forced to stand a preliminary trial in front of a city council to defend himself and he ends up getting totally mocked and ridiculed and kicked out of the city. But before he leaves, he starts a church. Then Paul moves from Athens, the cultural center of the Roman Empire, to Corinth. 
the center of sensuality. This is old school Vegas. And Paul walks into this gigantic city, this city unlike anything he's seen so far, and he goes there with the bruises and the beatings on his body, with the bruises and the beatings on his heart from all of the disinterest from every town he has visited. And we know his heart at this moment as he enters into the city of Corinth because he tells us later as he's reminding the Corinthians in chapter 7 that he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and so much trembling. And Acts 18 tells us of Paul getting to, that's the story, we would have started there, but we have missed a couple Sundays. Acts 18 tells us that Paul he gets to Corinth, he actually makes some headway, and then he's rejected and he's ridiculed by the Jewish leaders, and he gets to such a low point where he is despairing that Jesus comes to him in a vision in order to tell him to keep going to remind Paul of all people that Jesus' gospel really does work. Jesus comes to him and he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent because I'm with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. In this melting pot of cultures, pagan religions, rife with entertainment and and sensuality, enslaving people's hearts. Like what can compete with that? Jesus reminds Paul that Jesus will draw people in this city out of that life and unite them to himself and to his church. I don't have access to the... uh, Uh, the archives of the Humanist Society at Cambridge, but I have it on good authority from a Scotsman that I trust that in the 60s, I tried to look this up, but the Cambridge Humanist Society in the 60s was in its heyday. In in the 60s, everyone was buying what the humanists were selling. Uh, So in, uh, you know, man's inherent goodness, mankind's potential ability to solve any and every problem rationally, So, in 1964, the Cambridge University Mission, it's it's like a college campus uh, ministry uh, organization, the Cambridge University Mission dedicated themselves to praying in 1964 for the most unlikely of people, including the president of the Humanist Society. That year, in the Cambridge University mission meetings, the president of the Humanist Society placed his faith in Jesus Christ. This is at Cambridge. This is the Humanist Society in the 1960s, okay? So, in total shock and disbelief, the Cambridge Humanist Society has to call a special meeting to appoint a new president. And within three weeks, they had to call another special meeting to appoint another new president because within three weeks, that successor also placed his faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus reminded his apostle of, the power of the gospel that unites divided people in Jesus. So in Acts 18... We read when Paul is rejected and he is ridiculed by the Jewish leaders in Corinth, he, he literally moves right next door to a guy's house, a guy called uh, Titius Justice. He moves right next door because this guy right next door converts. He and his family convert. 
And then it says that Crispus, the synagogue ruler next door, leaves the synagogue and joins Paul because he and his family convert. Then a bunch of Corinthian Gentiles, pagans, like these are pagan Greeks, who are cray-cray, they convert. Then the Jews in Corinth, they bring charges against Paul. And they bring him before the Roman proconsul, the, the, the Roman official in charge of the city. And immediately the Roman official says, this has nothing to do with us. And he dismisses the charges outright. So then in their rage and frustration, because they can't take it out on Paul, this mob turns all of their anger to the new synagogue ruler, Sosthenes. And they blame him because this is all happening under their watch. And they beat him. Now, you would think uh, Sosthenes isn't blaming himself. He's blaming Paul. He has every reason and all the incentive to despise Paul and this Jesus and this gospel. And that episode in Acts 18, it leaves us with Sosthenes beaten in the street. And then we read Paul's first letter back to the Corinthians. And it opens up with this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Paul shows up in Corinth wondering if the gospel of Jesus is going to work here. And the most unlikeliest of people, Corinthian pagan Gentiles and two synagogue rulers are united to Jesus in the church. In this fall, we are going to see Jesus and his gospel overcome the divisions amongst the church and unite them. So the question for us is, does Jesus still work? Does Jesus still unite his church today? The call to unity in verse 10, it is grounded in what comes before in verse 9 where it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That fellowship with Jesus Christ, it is so tempting to think of, loved ones, it is so tempting to think of Jesus, arms folded, foot tapping, looking at you with disappointment in his eyes because we keep failing him. And that is because deep down, who have we offended the most? Like in our lives, in this world, when everything is, everything is offending everything. Deep down, we know who we have offended the most. Who were we most divided against is God. With every failure to love God with everything we think, say, and do, for all we ought to have thought and have not thought, all we, thought, all we ought to have said and have not said, all we ought to have done, we haven't done, in, in the reverse of that, uh, instead, thinking, saying, doing what we ought not to have. And because of our sin, that great divide between us and God, it is unbridgeable. It is an irreconcilable divide. It is impossible for us. But Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the God-man graciously, lovingly dying for those who are set against him divided against him, taking all our guilt and shame on the cross for us. I mean, look, Jesus dies for his enemies to unite them to his family. When you think about Jesus, Jesus wants to be with you. 
And if you hold on to Jesus for dear life, the one who lived and died for you, you will be united to others holding on to Jesus for dear life. If the impossible has been made possible by Jesus and we have been reconciled to God, of course, of course, in being united to Jesus, we here, I'm telling you, of course, we here can be reconciled and united to one another. Of course. No matter what division we can overcome in Jesus. And of course, others who are not currently reconciled and united can be united to Jesus and to us. And that is our hope and that is our prayer. Uh, Loved ones, the world, this world is divided. Families are divided. The church is divided. There are more and more people leaving the church today than than have in many, 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 many generations. What are we going to do? we're going to go on speaking the gospel because it's Jesus who unites. This is from a, a Mississippian pastoral. I'll end with this. Uh, schism cannot tear a church apart when its members know they're united to Jesus and in him necessarily united to one another. Fight division, Paul is saying, by a superior pursuit of Jesus Christ. What are we going to do? We're just going to go after Jesus and we'll do it together. Please pray with me. Father, we will end this morning, uh, part of the sermon, uh, by praying that prayer that you taught your people to say. We will all pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us that day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.